Hello and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. I'm Zoe Cunningham. On the Digital Lighthouse, we get inspiration from tech leaders to help us to shine a light through turbulent times. We believe that if you have a lighthouse, you can harness the power of the storm. Today, I am super excited to welcome Will Dixon, who is Professor of Digital Epidemiology at the University of Manchester. And I think, Will, that is the most exciting title that anyone on the podcast has ever had. So welcome to the Digital Lighthouse and tell us what it means to be a Professor of Digital Epidemiology. Uh, Well, thank you, Zoe. Thanks for the invitation to join you. So I think prior to the pandemic, uh, I'd have to explain to people what epidemiology is, but people have heard of uh, <laughs> epidemiology and epidemiologists over the last couple of years. So epidemiology is the study of diseases in populations. So we're interested in finding out the causes, the consequences of living with disease by studying data across whole populations. And the digital part of my title is that I'm interested in using digital health data sources to study epidemiology. Um, So that might be the use of electronic health records. So if you go and see your GP or if you go and see me, I'm a consultant rheumatologist as well at Salford Royal, then we'll enter information into an electronic health record, primarily to help guide your clinical care. But if we de-identify all of that data and manage the data securely, then we can analyze the data across large populations of people, for example, to look at the safety of medications or to understand the risk factors for who might develop COVID that led to the kind of guidance of who should shield during the pandemic. So electronic health records are one data source, but I think one of the really exciting opportunities in the last five to 10 years, and that will only get bigger, is the opportunity to collect data directly from patients and the public themselves using the devices that we all carry around with us, so via smartphones, via wearable devices. And that can cover us a much richer and clearer picture about health that will complement rather than replace what we could already know from electronic health records and other data sources. So tell me a bit about where we've come from then, like how we've got to this point, how how's it worked, you know, in the past? Okay, well, I can answer that through the story of the centre that I directed Manchester. So um, I'm the director for the Centre for Epidemiology versus Arthritis. So this is funded by the National Charity versus Arthritis. They're focused on musculoskeletal disease. And actually, we've been doing arthritis epidemiology in Manchester since the 1950s. When the centre began in 1954, one of the first projects that they did was looking at the relationship between coal mining and rheumatism. Um, So you can imagine working underground, digging away at coal fields in cramped conditions, and they were asked by the National Coal Board whether that might lead to musculoskeletal problems. Did it lead to osteoarthritis of the knee? Did it cause back problems? But to do that research, the team uh, in the 1950s would drive out to the coal fields. They would do x-rays of miners. They would ask questions, and then they would uh, record the responses to those questions on punch cards. So they'd create holes in these small pieces of cards. They'd thread a stick through the holes and shape the stick, and then the number of cards that fell to the floor would help them count how many people did or didn't have a certain response. So you can see that the kind of concept of epidemiology is unchanged. We're trying to measure how frequently people have diseases and what are the risk factors for those diseases, mining and rheumatism, 
was one example of that. But the methodology for doing that, the way in which we can collect the data has really changed over the years. So from going out doing surveys uh, in advance over the years to sending out postal questionnaires, we'd receive that back um, and we transcribe that into a database. Then it moved into national registers and cohorts where we collect information from clinical colleagues. And again, we'd enter that into a database. And now kind of moving into the reuse of routinely collected data, which is held digitally. And now, as I've just explained, kind of advancing into collecting data directly from patients themselves using their own technology. Mm. So I think there's kind of two different things that are going on that are going to change things, right? There's the this kind of increase in our ability to collect data. So we can collect more data more quickly and more conveniently, which, like you say, is kind of even postal data is an improvement over physically having to travel somewhere and then being able to or even connect to your device. Right. Which um, I'd love to talk about as well, like what kind of applications there are there. Um, But also then the fact that I suppose there was medical data collection more generally in the 1950s, was there? Or is that something that's really ramped up recently? Well, it's interesting that we're about to, I think it's next week, celebrate the 75th anniversary of the NHS. And so our Centre for Epidemiology began only a few years after the launch of the NHS, but both of which were in Greater Manchester. So there wasn't so much routinely collected information then, and it hasn't always been accessible for research. Um, So although I talk about this great opportunity from health records, historically, health records were uh, a series of paper documents that were held together in in, in a paper wallet that was filed in your GP surgery. So if you want to analyze it across thousands of people, you'd have to sit down and open every little wallet, read through it, and kind of collate that information yourself. But given that it's now digital data, that's much easier to do. But you're right, the the availability of data, it's always been there. How accessible is it for research? Is the quality good enough? What is it that we're collecting? Is that just in one part of the health system and not another? That has continued to evolve through time. Can you give us some examples of the kind of data research that's kind of going on right now then? Yeah. um, I mean, before I do that, let me perhaps introduce why smartphone-based health research is exciting. So we've talked about being able to collect data directly from patients, but it's a bit more than that. The first thing is that we can collect data that previously were hard to collect. So we can collect the same thing, so kind of a paper-based questionnaire you can put onto a digital screen. But you can also do much more than that because the touchscreen is interactive. Um, The second thing is that you can pull information from smartphones other technology so uh, the phone's a bit like a swiss army knife that it's not just the touch screen but it also has a camera a microphone uh, an accelerometer a gyroscope gps you know and more kit within it which if we think creatively we might be able to also use for health research and i'll come on to an example of how we've done that secondly because in theory you can track things regularly through time. You can integrate this data collection into people's lives rather than having information as a snapshot from when you happen to go to the GP once every six months. You can collect information on a day-to-day basis. So kind of a richer time series of data. 
The third thing is that the uptake of consumer technology has been exponential and now nine in 10 people own a smartphone. Obviously, it's not everyone. We need to be sensitive to that and understand when our results can be generalized to everybody. But nine in 10 is not bad. You know, we have the potential to reach most of the population through this method. And then also we can change the way in which we do study design so we can look at differences within an individual rather than just comparing between people in a population. We can analyze in different ways because the data is vast. We can start to use machine learning and AI. Lastly, you can also present information back to people to keep them engaged or even to do interventions, so a health intervention that might be, say, digital coaching through a smart screen. So all of those kind of opportunities together can potentially transform how we do epidemiology. But I said I kind of went off on a tangent to tell you that because you'd asked me about a specific case study. So one example that we ran a few years ago was a study that was investigating the age-old belief that the weather can affect pain in people with arthritis. So it's something that a lot of people have heard of. You might have heard somebody say, you know, I can tell it's going to rain because I can feel it in my hip. You know, it's a well-known old wives' tale that uh, there's a relationship between the weather and symptoms. But previous to our study, nobody really answered this question. What was it within the weather that affected this relationship? And making use of all of those advantages that I just spoke about, we asked people to track their symptoms every day. So that allowed us to track the symptoms through different seasons, allowing you to be exposed to different weather data. We could see how things changed in response to the weather. We used the GPS within the smartphone to then link to the local weather data. So we built up a data set of over 13,000 people who tracked their symptoms across many seasons, over 5 million data points, and that allowed us to examine whether the weather influenced pain in people's arthritis. A study called cloudy with a chance of pain. So we found that um, painful days were associated with high humidity and low pressure, which some patients describe uh, in clinic, particularly the, the kind of forecasting aspect, the fact that people believe that they can tell what the weather's going to be. There would have to be something in the weather today that is causing your symptoms that also relates to the weather to come. And that's that, that's pressure. If you can then get a change in the pressure that then changes how the weather over the next few days happens. Fantastic. Because I think that, yeah, as human beings, we obviously have all this sophisticated sensing data already, but also we have the ability to come up with links that aren't there, right? (laughs) So actually, when you can tell the difference, that's when you can start to use it and improve people's lives. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the cloudy with a chance of pain was doing what we all try and do every day, the kind of science in our everyday lives is that if you have a bad day, you think, well, why is it I'm feeling like this? And what you do mentally, but without the kind of hard data to back it up, you try and compare a bad day to comparing to a good day. And what was it that happened on your bad day compared to what it was that happened on a good day? And that's exactly the analysis method that we used in Cloudy with a Chance of Pain. But you can only do that because you're measuring how things have changed on a day-to-day basis within an individual. You can make that within-person comparison. So what are the challenges then for you (laughs) in terms of we've got all this amazing data, amazing technology? What are the challenges? There are endless challenges, actually. I mean, I think the hype of using smartphones for health research has been around for a long time. So you can find 
articles that say you know, mobile phones will deliver data bounty dating back 10 years. And yet, if you look at how many studies have actually successfully run from beginning to end and created the results that they intended to, there are only a small number of them. Some of them really impactful and really important, like the COVID Zoe app. That was outstanding. Lots of people around the country participated in that, in total around 4 million people. An interesting statistic about this is that the NHS had set a target of wanting to have 100,000 people contributing to health research studies in 2019. And then during the pandemic, the COVID Zoe study recruited 1 million people in one day. So <laughs> one study recruited 10 times the, like, the national target for recruitment over the year. And then, you know, ultimately they recruited 4 million people made possible because of the opportunities that I've described for, you know, the number of people that have smartphones. But what are the challenges? Well, if you're trying to collect data from patients and the public, particularly if you're trying to do that regularly through time, people have to be motivated to take part. They have to understand what it is that you're trying to do. They have to want to contribute. Perhaps there even needs to be something in it from them, from doing their symptom tracking, say, or helping them learn about what are those triggers for their flares in their disease. So you have to partner with patients and the public in the right way so that you're answering questions that matter to them. If you're trying to get them to use technology, it has to be designed in the right way. It has to be easy and simple to use. It has to get the right data out. That data has to be valid. It has to measure what you think it's measuring. It needs to be repeatable through time without it drifting and changing. You have to understand how the data will flow to be able to describe that to participants, you know, take their consent to participate by saying that you know, it will be collected within this app in the following way, and then it will flow to this place, and these people will have access to it. So all of the information governance around it is challenging. How you then analyze this time series data, so uh, instead of just a change from baseline to six months, your pain score is improved by six points from eight to two. Actually, we've got another 180 data points in between, and how do you describe that easily? What's the statistics that you use to kind of measure that change in pain? So there's all sorts of challenges, and actually you have to solve all of them to get from beginning to end, and a lot of studies sort of struggle somewhere along the way. I mean, I'm actually recording the podcast from Softwire in Manchester today because we are indeed trying to develop a new way of collecting side effects from patients in a way that's simple and easy to do, in a way that people would want to do, in a way that gives us valid, coded, structured information at the end, going from a kind of story of what happened with your side effects to a code that somebody got nausea or somebody had diarrhea or somebody had a, 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 a severe rash. That's quite a challenge technically, but it has to be done in a way that patients the public can engage with and understand and use easily. And we've got 10 patients coming in to talk through the kind of preliminary designs so that we can then get to a position that it kind of suits my needs as a researcher, but also patients of the public would engage with. Yes. So it's really interesting actually hearing about the challenges after the example about the Zoe app. People did see how it was relevant and 
a large number of people saw how it was immediately relevant for them. <laughs> you know, this was suddenly a disease that we were all at risk yes. of. And I think there was an incredible amount of motivation, wasn't there, for people to get involved and report accurately and support the, the initiative. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it was affecting everyone in the country in different ways. Not everyone had COVID at the same time, but everyone was aware that they might and everyone wanted to contribute to a better understanding of this thing that we didn't initially understand. And, you know, that we're not going to often be recruiting 4 million people to a health research study, but it stands out as a really incredible example of what the power of such research is and showing that you can recruit at scale, showing that you can generate clinically important information from it. I mean, for example, from that COVID Zoe study, when it began, we didn't really know what the cardinal symptoms of COVID infection were. And through the symptom reporting from those 4 million participants, we came to understand that a loss of the sense of smell was a key feature. And it's kind of hard to remember back, but at the beginning, we didn't know that. And it was only because we collected the information from all of those participants that that changed the kind of guidance and the definitions. And then it was, you know, well, if you've got a loss of sense of smell, then you should definitely go and get a COVID test. Yeah. And, and I think we all knew it was a bit like a cold. <laughs> so, mm. you know, kind of coughing and sneezing, but actually realising that the coughing was important, the sneezing wasn't important. And then, like you yeah. say, these strange symptoms like, you know, loss of taste or food tasting strange, which I guess is linked to the smell, right? So that's kind of where we're at now. What are you hopeful that we're going to be able to do in the future? Well, I kind of touched on earlier that I'm also a consultant rheumatologist. So I look after people with arthritis in my clinic at Salford Royal Hospital. And I think what may well happen is that, although it's difficult, I think we will start to integrate patient-generated data into the NHS, but be thinking also about how we might use that data for health research. And if we do that successfully, we will have a kind of a sustainable stream of data collected for purposes that patients and the public understand, but we collect information once but can reuse it for multiple things. So let me tell you about another study that we've got running at the moment. So this is called REMORA, which stands for Remote Monitoring of Rheumatoid Arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis is one of the most common inflammatory joint problems you get pain, swelling, and stiffness in your joints because of inflammation in the joints. It affects just under 1% of the population. And this is a disease that flares through time. So sometimes people can be uh, well, and other days their symptoms will get worse. They'll get more stiffness in the morning, more pain, more difficulty performing daily tasks. But the way that I, as a rheumatologist, assess and manage, help manage people's conditions is that I'll see them in clinic, say, once every six months. And my opening question to my patients is, how have you been since I last saw you? And, you know, really, that's possibly one of the hardest questions to answer. You know, how can you possibly describe, like in a minute, the symptoms that have gone up and down, uh, the many different symptoms that you have, the impact on your daily life, how that's affecting all sorts of aspects of, of your life. And so in Remora, what we've done is we've designed with patients and the public a, a smartphone app and a kind of a, a linked system whereby people can track their symptoms, a bit like in Cloudy with a chance of pain. How bad do you pain today on a score of 0 to 10? 
a range of other symptoms collected. And then the data flow into a central location within the NHS. And then we have a graph of how somebody's been that's available and integrated into the electronic health record. So without me needing to log on to a separate system as a doctor, I can immediately see a graph of how somebody's been since they were last seen. And that, in theory, allows us to have a clearer picture of how somebody's been, make better informed decisions, and therefore lead to better clinical outcomes. Um, so we're about to go into a, a randomized trial across two regions of the country to test whether this does indeed lead to better clinical outcomes. And so using smartphones to support clinical care. But then if you've got these kind of track daily symptoms in patients, then you can layer on top of it, just consent to reshare that data. And if we took consent to do the GPS, then you can reproduce cloudy with a chance of pain without having to set up a completely separate research study. So you have this kind of opportunity to integrate the two things. I think that's where it will get you know, really exciting. That We'll learn a lot about causes of disease, learn about the lifestyle factors, how changing those can influence people's disease. You know, everyone wants to know what can you do differently. If I were to change my physical activity, if I were to change how I sleep, what about the diet? You know, if you're able to track those things alongside tracking symptoms, then it opens up answers to all of these questions that we know are top priority for patients and for clinicians and researchers. Interestingly, there have been exercises by an organization called the James Lind Alliance that say uh, they bring together those three groups of people, so patients and doctors and researchers, and say, what are the 10 most important questions that you have that aren't yet answered? And they've done it in around 200 different health conditions. And if you take like any one of those 200 groups, and you read through the list of 10 things, there are almost invariably things that haven't been answered, but could be answered if only you could collect data directly from patients in public kind of regularly through time. And accurately. Uh, and accurately, yeah. Yeah, I think you're quite right that this is so exciting, that actually linking up this, why would someone engage in the study and what motivates them to... Uh, not just start a program, but keep with a program and keep collecting the data. That is an important piece of the puzzle. You can't just say, we need data, <laughs> because even the most well-meaning people, right, it, it's very hard to stay motivated if you don't really understand why you're doing it. But then at the same time, once you have that data, there's uses we know about now and uses we will find in the future as well. So, yeah, super exciting. Yes, and I think a really important part of this kind of life cycle of a study, you know, not just the what question are we trying to answer or what data do we want to collect about it, but right through to the end when you get the research results, we have the potential through this technology to provide that feedback back to participants. You know, you've kindly contributed to this study. Here are the results. Here's what we find. You know, the Zoe study did an exemplary job of this, and I hope it will be ultimately transforming how everyone has to do this in the future, that you need to have a dialogue with your participants to tell them what you're finding. I mean, that prior to that, there was a whole program around recognizing the need to not just have people as participants, but actually to feed the results back to them. We didn't do a very good job of that as a research community. I think the COVID Zoe study is an excellent example of where they did that with regular webinars. If we want people to be inputting data regularly, there needs to be a kind of 
a shift in power and a change in the nature of the relationship between the researchers and the public. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which just goes to show that, yes, technology advances and that's important, but actually it's our understanding and kind of models that we have also advance and that's an important kind of corollary alongside it. Yeah, I mean, I think the technology has to support what it is that we should be doing anyway, right? So we should be answering research questions that matter to patients. You know, it's even more important we do it if we want people to engage, but the technology is only there to facilitate that. We know that there are these things that we can only answer if we track them through time. You know, so how does diet influence your symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease? Well, we can only do that if we can track symptoms through time, and actually the technology provides an opportunity to do that. The feedback through the screen isn't there just because we can do it. It's fundamental part of what we should be doing anyway but now we have the opportunity to do it better oh well thank you so much will for coming on and sharing all of this insight and enlightenment with us today yeah you're very welcome it's been a pleasure